Our first lesson this morning is from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. Now the word of the Lord came upon me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Be not afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The theme of today's sermon is Luke, Physician and Evangelist. We are going to read briefly from Luke's gospel in two places. First of all, Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, preaching and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means." Then from Luke 18, the parable of the two men who go to the temple to pray, beginning at verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He said, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, says Jesus. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Thanks be to God for these readings from his own holy word. Luke never saw a crowd. Luke never saw a mob or a group or an audience. Luke never saw any time, anywhere, a faceless man or woman. He saw only an individual, an individual with a specific affliction or problem or perplexity. Luke saw only a suffering individual whom Jesus Christ graced and whom Luke thereafter loved. Luke's gospel is easily the warmest of the four. He describes people with such realism, yet also with such empathy, that our hearts go out to them. We can't help having our hearts go out to them, even though those people lived in so very different a time and place. 
Luke was a physician. He used a medical vocabulary instinctively. In the incident where the boy is said to be thrown down, English text, by his affliction, the Greek word Luke uses was simply the current medical term for convulsions. In the incident where the distraught father cries to Jesus, look upon my son, the word Luke uses for look upon is the current medical term used of a physician seeing a patient. Now, like most physicians, Luke was understandably defensive of the medical profession. When the menorrhagic woman approaches Jesus, Matthew and Mark tell us that she had exhausted all her savings on physicians, but was no better. <laughs> Dr. Luke tells us the same story, but he chooses to omit the part about costly medical treatment that has proved ineffective. As a travel companion of Paul, Luke got to meet the leaders of the young church, Peter, Barnabas, Stephen, Lydia. But Paul was his special friend, his bosom friend, and to his friend, Luke remained undeflectably loyal. How loyal? When Paul was imprisoned in Rome and his execution was imminent, Paul wrote young Timothy, Luke alone is with me. Well, he couldn't have been more loyal. If Luke stood by Paul, a man on death row, then did Luke meet the same violent end as Paul? We don't know. We shall have to wait until the beloved physician tells us himself, if we'll even bother to ask such questions on the coming great day. Luke was a Gentile, the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. There's nothing in his gospel that a Gentile can't grasp. He habitually gives Hebrew words in their Greek equivalent so that a Gentile can understand. Simon the Canaanian becomes Simon the Zealot. Calvary isn't called by its Hebrew name Golgotha, but by its Greek name Cranion. Golgotha and Cranion both mean the place of a skull. Luke never uses the Jewish term rabbi of Jesus. Never. He always uses a Greek term meaning master. In tracing the descent of Jesus, he follows it back not to Abraham, the foreparent of Jews, as Matthew does, but to Adam, the foreparent of all humans. Luke's writings are the single largest contribution to the New Testament. His written gospel is the longest book in the New Testament. And when we add his second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, we have over one quarter of the New Testament. Luke wrote excellent Greek. In fact, his Greek is the best in all of Scripture. Luke was well-educated and widely traveled. He is the only gospel writer to speak of the Sea of Galilee as a lake because Luke had been to the Mediterranean, and he knew that compared to the Mediterranean, Galilee, seven miles wide, was only a lake. Plainly, it was Luke's intention to describe in his written gospel God's activity in the ministry of Jesus and to describe in the Acts God's activity in the church. Luke never intended to write about himself. Nevertheless, what he wrote about his Lord accidentally tells us much about Luke. In learning what it was about Jesus that intrigued Luke, we learn ever so much about the evangelist as well. Think of children, for instance. Luke says more about children than any other gospel writer. He knew how anguished parents are when a child, especially an only child, is gravely ill. Three times he, says, he mentions distraught parents who cry, she's my only child and she's dying. 
or he's my only child, and he convulses and foams at the mouth. When Matthew and Mark speak of the children who are brought to Jesus, they use a Greek word that means a youngster of any age, from the neonate to the adolescent. Luke, however, uses a different word, not pais paideia this time, but brephos. It's a word that simply means infant. In Greek, Luke's word also means unborn child or fetus. It's the word Luke uses for the infants who are brought to Jesus for blessing and for the unborn John the Baptist who stirred in the womb of Elizabeth when Mary told Elizabeth she was pregnant too. Luke loved children, and children for him included the not yet born. Luke, Gentile though he was, knew that God had said to Jeremiah centuries earlier, I knew you even before I formed you in the womb. I consecrated you a prophet before you were born. Several times I have been asked to conduct living room services for a couple who have miscarried. In every case, the couple wants and receives from me recognition of the truth that what they have just lost isn't of the same order as resected tonsils or gallbladder or appendix. Luke's witness needs to be heard because I think there's less room than ever for children in our society. Whereas Israel regarded childlessness as the greatest misfortune that could befall anyone worse even than leprosy or blindness, many couples today elect never to have children. They tell us they don't need children to be complete themselves. Did anyone ever say they did? They tell us, too, that children interfere with career plans, travel plans, research plans, financial plans, cult, cultural plans, holiday plans. Well, of course they do. I happen to think, however, that a society that has little room for children finally has little room for life. The Hebrew greeting, Luchaim, to life, is finally impossible unless we are also saying to children. No society can finally be life-affirming and child-denying at the same time. Luke noted not only our Lord's love of children, he noted as well our Lord's love of misfits, outcasts, submerged citizens, losers, call them whatever you want. Like his master, Luke too loved the non-winners in the race to the top, the losers in the games that so many of us have learned to play so well. This is why Luke relates the master's parable of the two men who go to the temple to pray. One man glories in his virtue. He doesn't merely appear virtuous. If he merely appeared virtuous, the parable would have no point, no bite. The man is virtuous. When he thanks God that he's not like other men, like the creep beside him, he's telling the truth. He isn't like other men. He's devout. He tithes. He keeps his sex life squeaky clean. The publican, on the other hand, possesses no such virtue in which to glory. He can only say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this fellow, says Jesus, goes home justified. That is, set right with God. Any congregation sees only part of a minister's work, the part that pertains to preaching, teaching, pastoring, administering, you know, the part that has public visibility and more than a little glamour and glory. The other part of the minister's work, nobody sees, nobody that is except perhaps the church secretary. This part is the minister's work with the so-called losers. 
they come to the minister for help. They are out of money and they want a few dollars for this or for that. Or they are chronically mentally ill and with the insight of the mentally ill and the unguardedness of the mentally ill, they don't understand why they are in trouble every time they say, the emperor has no clothes, when it's perfectly plain that the emperor has no clothes and all the sane people around them know it too, except that the sane people won't say it. In my experience as a pastor, I was a garden variety pastor for 37 years became, before I became an exalted professor at Tyndale. In my work as a pastor, the women, I've noted that the women who come to the minister for a few dollars want money for two items 90% of the time. They want money for paper diapers and money for, vaginal, for drugs for vaginal yeast infections. That's what they want money for 90% of the time. For a long time, I have known that the people who have drug plans are those with jobs rich enough they don't need drug plans while the people without drug plans are those with jobs poor enough that they do need drug plans. I trust nobody in this room today is going to begrudge these poor women money for paper diapers, even though there might be a few women here today who have washed cloth diapers for years. And then there's the family whose son or husband or brother has hanged himself or shot himself, and the family needs a funeral that won't last very long. Anguished families from the south side of the tracks have consistently asked one question only of me concerning such a funeral. Their question, will it last long? These people sidle up to me as unobtrusively as they can. Either they have no inclination to join us at worship on Sunday morning, or else they don't feel comfortable there. They likely think, no doubt mistakenly, that you and I don't hurt as they do, that life is rosy for us all the time, that we aren't caught in the same suffering and facing the same death. For years now, I've been haunted by their non-appearance on Sunday mornings. I'm haunted because Luke keeps telling us that a woman whose life was a moral mess-up found in Jesus what she had found nowhere else. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was intrigued enough by Jesus to come as close as he could while attempting to remain unnoticed. And then there was the dying convict who gasped to his gallows mates whom he was seeing for the first time, won't you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And received a word that let him die relieved. I've asked myself a thousand times why these people aren't found at worship. And then one day I realized that Jesus didn't meet them in the synagogue. He met the woman in a man's home. He met Zacchaeus at a shopping center in Jericho. He met the dying convict at the garbage dump in Jerusalem. He didn't meet any of them in the synagogue. In the course of my ministry in Mississauga, I was pastor in Mississauga alone for 21 years. I had to drive home from the hospital a woman and her two young children. Her third child had just been admitted to hospital on account of stomach trouble. Three children, no husband. A fellow who was fond of her, inappropriately fond, I'll let you fill in the details, got into an argument with another fellow, also inappropriately fond, over her. The first fellow stabbed the second fellow to death on a Sunday night. 
The next day, Monday morning, the manager of the local food store phoned me. You know, Monday, the pastor's day off. The woman needing food had gone to his store and purchased food with a check, a rubber check. Would I make the check good? I'm not pretending that the woman is virtuous. She isn't. While she has no doubt been victimized by much in her life, I'm not pretending that she isn't also self-victimized. She is. I'm not pretending that she possesses the homemaking skills needed to raise her family. She doesn't. Her children's future, material future, let's be honest, her children's material future is as bleak as hers. She's a loser. When Luke came upon stories like hers in the oral traditions about Jesus, he loved them and he grasped them and he fastened onto them. Luke says that these people, not often found in the synagogue, were dear to Jesus and welcomed our Lord as warmly as he welcomed them. Also important to Luke, because important first to his Lord were women. Luke mentions 13, count them, 13 women mentioned nowhere else in the Gospels. All the Gospel writers recognized that Jesus elevated women and gave them a status and an honor they had received nowhere else. Oddly enough, Mark momentarily slipped back into the old way of thinking. Mark tells us that Jesus had four brothers and he names them. Then Mark adds that Jesus also had sisters without stating how many or what their names were. But Luke tells us that the first European convert to the Christian faith was a woman, Lydia, by name. Luke tells us that it was wealthy women who financed the band of disciples when those men had renounced gainful employment. Luke knew much of the degradation of women, and he was determined to overturn it. Several years ago, when the Anglican and United Churches were discussing church union, some people objected strenuously to women clergy. Why, they said, if a woman presides at Holy Communion and says, this is my body, she will fan something in male worshipers better left unfanned. Tell me, when I, a male clergy, preside at Holy Communion and I say, this is my body, do I send women wild with surges of libido? <laughs> For years, most Christian denominations have forbidden women to speak in public worship. But in the Acts, the book of Acts, Luke tells us that when the Spirit of God came upon and moved the four daughters of Philip, those four women stood up in worship and spoke. We must remember that only a few years ago, women were not allowed to vote. In 1929, the government of Canada maintained that documents using the word person didn't pertain to women because women were non-persons. It was only a few decades ago that Flora MacDonald, a member of parliament, found herself excluded from a state function in Europe. The organizers had assumed that no woman would be representing a nation. What did they think of Margaret Thatcher? That she was a freak of some sort? Today, right now, in four-fifths of Christendom, women are denied access to ordination, despite the fact that women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and being such an eyewitness was a condition of being an apostle, no less. How is it that women qualify as apostles, but not as ministers? Luke faithfully reflected his Lord's elevation of women.
We shouldn't think that this is all there is to Dr. Luke. There's a great deal more to him. There are three emphases in Luke's mind and heart that receive more attention than anywhere else in the New Testament. The three emphases are joy, the Holy Spirit, and prayer. All three are related. All three flow into and flow out of each other. In Luke's writings, Jesus prays more and Christians pay more than anywhere else in the New Testament. Luke also says more about the Spirit, God's immediate, intimate, effectual work in and among God's people. And Luke's writings throb with joy. Luke knows that as we are brought to faith in Jesus Christ, we are lifted up out of ourselves. We are lifted up, up to the one who rejoices himself. There is joy in heaven, says Luke, when someone finally unclutters her life and welcomes the bread of life. Joy before the angels of God, he adds, when someone who is meandering blindly is made to see and steps out on the way. There is merriment, dancing, a party, when the wayward and the foolish finally wisen up and come home. In describing the growth of the young church in Acts, Luke speaks again and again of the Holy Spirit, God's unique effectiveness in vivifying the witness of the disciples, in supplying encouragement to believers in the face of resistance, and in causing love to triumph in the congregation amidst disagreement and suspicion. When missionaries announce the good news of the gospel and some who have never heard it before stand up and stand with the apostles, Luke writes, there was much joy in that city. When persecution flays the missionaries themselves, Luke tells us that these men and women were filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy. Luke knows that people turned in on themselves never find the happiness they seek. He knows just as certainly that as people are moved to look away from themselves and to that kingdom and its Lord now filling the horizon of their lives, their discontent gives way to joy. Luke begins his gospel with a note of joy. Zechariah and Elizabeth are told they will find joy in their old age fertility as their son John the Baptist is born to herald the Messiah. Then Luke ends his gospel on a note of joy with the resurrection story of Jesus as witnesses to the resurrection returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now in telling the Christian story as he has, and specifically in speaking of Jesus as he has, Luke has left-handedly told us a great deal about himself. Plainly, Luke has enormous confidence in the Holy Spirit, the presence and power of God. Plainly, Luke's own heart throbs, and plainly, all of this is nourished by the time Luke himself spends on his knees, as was the case with his Lord before him. As for Luke's attention to children, women, the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the disadvantaged, the suffering, Luke's attention here reflects the sensitive observation of the physician who sees the wounded of the world every day. And as for Luke's provision of a written gospel that is Gentile-friendly, we can only thank God for this one Gentile who knew that the Jew from Nazareth had other sheep of another fold and knew that you and I Gentiles that we are, are just these sheep.
Would you stand, please? Seeking Jesus Christ, you did come. In his abiding presence, go now in peace. And the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon and remain with you always. Amen.